At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hey guys, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we know that it can be tricky to keep up your sex life when you're a busy parent, but we also know you need it. Well, we're working on a book right now that'll include real tips from real parents on how to keep things alive in the bedroom or the car or wherever you might be doing it. The book is called Weird Parenting Wins, and we need to hear some wins on self-care, especially romantic self-care. Co-sleepers, now is your chance to tell us how you make it work. Here's how you submit. Go to longestshortesttime.com and click participate. Then just fill out the weird parenting wins form. It's super easy. Don't be shy. You can submit anonymously. Just write anonymous where we ask how you'd like to be identified. That's longestshortesttime.com and click participate. Thank you. Don't have sex because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? Okay, everybody take some rubbers. American sex education. It's the best, right? This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. And my sex ed class wasn't quite like that clip we just heard from the movie Mean Girls. I hope yours wasn't either. But it was still weird. My first sex ed class happened in fifth grade. They split us up, one room for the boys, one for the girls. And they played this old film strip from, I don't know, maybe the 60s about the menstrual cycle and sperm and eggs. There were lots of facts. Then when I was in seventh grade, they sprang some sex ed on us in our regular health class. This time it was co-ed. But the thing I really remember is the teacher drawing a big ol' erection on the chalkboard. And then the woodshop teacher came in, I guess so that the class would have a guy teacher too. And he helped out. And these two teachers, they both kept smiling at each other in this weird way throughout the entire class. And it made me never want to hear the word erection again. Well, how did erections and sex even become things that we talk about in the classroom? We've got a lot of questions. Do boys have anything like menstruation? I heard my mother tell a neighbor I was born cesarean. What does that mean? How long will it take till my voice changes? I'd like to know more about different kinds of hormones. All of those are excellent questions. 
That's a clip from a 1947 classroom film strip. We're going to get to hear more archival examples of sex ed lessons throughout this show. And to help us walk through the last 150 years of sex ed, we've brought in a bona fide historian. My name is Lisa Anderson, and I'm an associate professor of liberal arts and history at the Juilliard School. Lisa is also my neighbor, and she's co-authoring a book about the history and philosophy of sex ed. And boys and girls, let me tell you, the history of American sex education is more absurd than even the classes themselves. Today, Lisa Anderson will tell us all about the sometimes helpful, often strange ways that young Americans have been taught about getting it on. She'll tell us how people learned this stuff before it was put in schools, what drove it into the classroom in the first place, and the cultural forces, (laughs) communism, that have shaped sex ed over the decades. Now, sex. Sex, sex, sex. Where were we? Ugh, you guys, Monty Python, so good. Okay, so even though Lisa and I are around the same age, Her sex ed instruction was super different from mine. So I went to Catholic school as a child. And so all of the girls would go with Mrs. Novak and all the boys went with Sister Janet, um, who did not teach sex ed. Instead, Sister Janet taught them uh, an elaborate craft involving popsicle sticks. While in our classroom, we got (laughs) instruction with Mrs. Novak. I know. Now that I think of it, yeah. Um, So Mrs. Novak had these like amazing peach fingernails. Like, that's what I remember. And she used to, like, eat chocolate-covered strawberries all the time. Anyway, so she actually did an <laughs> incredible job, I think, teaching us sex ed. And she was um, impossible to embarrass. So we would ask, like, just the strangest questions, and she would answer them all completely honestly. And I really give her props for that. Is that typical of Catholic education? Well, I think that there was a sense that, oh, if I can phrase this extremely crudely, um, if you were asking students to maintain their chastity, right, which is was the expectation, that was the party line that they were teaching, then they didn't want to hear any of this, I didn't know I could get pregnant while standing up stuff. So, in fact, it was actually very, very clear. Um, like, it definitely erred on the side of clarity. Lisa's work isn't usually about sex ed or fifth grade memories. She's a generalist historian. She wrote a book about the Prohibition Party, a failed political party from the turn of the century. The classes she teaches are about the Civil War and the history of gender. She likes working on stuff that's surprising and complicated. Topics that are somewhat between politics and political culture. So the variety of issues that shouldn't be partisan issues and yet wind up awkwardly placed into partisan agendas. So these things that are public and then we try and force them into party um, lines, even though there's not really a logic there. And history of sex ed has... um, a large ongoing problem of not fitting neatly into the lines of either liberal or conservative or any of the other ways that we would traditionally break down information. Lisa says to understand how we got formal sex education in American classrooms, you got to go way back, before the modern school system really, to around the mid-1800s. America's mostly a rural country. So there are cities, but it's mostly rural. And in rural communities where you have farming, you have a financial investment in understanding how breeding works. In other words, nobody's trying to stop the bull and the cow. So a lot of it is because families are invested in making sure reproduction happens. Young people have a hands-on understanding. That doesn't mean they know names for body parts. 
right? But they're familiar with the idea that mammals reproduce in certain ways. Also, people are living in smaller homes. It's a little trickier to be discreet. And even people are giving birth in their homes. You can't really sell people on a story about the stork when they hear their mother screaming in an adjacent room. (laughs) Right? Yeah, the myth just doesn't work. But as the 19th century progressed, more and more Americans moved to cities. Middle and upper class families became increasingly focused on protecting their daughter's chastity and their quote unquote innocence. No more learning about the birds and bees by watching birds and bees. These girls were deliberately kept from almost all knowledge of reproduction, pleasure, or sexuality. They were sent to boarding schools, and a lot of their social time was at church, which meant a lot of sex ed for late 19th century young women happened on their wedding day. There was an expectation that husbands would need to teach their wives, um, that wives might not know. And so it was going to be husbands' responsibility to share that information with them, which, I mean, that would be quite a surprise on the wedding night. And in fact, we found that a lot of marriages were consummated quite a bit later. But wait, how would the husbands know? The husbands knew because of prostitutes. Oh. Yeah. So you have like women in their early 20s who don't know that this is going to happen. And then all of a sudden on their wedding night, this information gets shared with them. And I just think, good Lord, how shocking, you know, like, because if, if you don't have any preparation. And like it gets shared with them in that the, yeah, the man they're marrying is like, hey, honey, we got to sit down and talk, you know, um, and it's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it, I can only imagine that that would be a very rough way to start a marriage. Um, that just seems unbelievable. Doesn't though, it? Knowing like the way humans work, that that, that wouldn't, that that they wouldn't know. Like, is that really for real? Well, this is the thing. So um, most historians have argued, oh, that can't be for real. That's just women putting it on. But I started going through survey results of women who were willing to talk about sex. Like these are interviewees, you know, educated women who are willing to, in an interview, disclose how often they have orgasms, whether or not they had sex during pregnancy, um, what they consider the purpose of sex and whether they enjoy it. So in other words, they're willing to talk on the record about quite a bit. Um, And they're saying, I didn't know before my wedding night. Um, and then I thought, okay, we got to assess this claim a little bit. Like, even so, we have to assess this. And so I started reading the sex education manuals they cited because a lot of them were like, but I read talkology. Or I read what is talkology? Talkology was, it was a word for um, having to do with birth and birthing. Um, but it was like a, the nice title that you put on women's uh, engagement guides. I'll put it that way. And these women were saying, God, I read the books and I just, I had no idea. And I thought, that can't be true. So I went through and I started reading the books and Honestly, they are the worst descriptions of sex I've ever read. I absolutely believe that you could read them and be completely confused. Like, um, oh, my favorite quote is something along the lines of uh, the, the male sperm and the female germ come into contact. And that's it. That's like, it's a 400-page book, and that's the full description of sex. And I'm like, that is not getting us to the vocabulary that would actually be helpful. Um, People seem very, very reluctant to use the words penis and vagina, which I'm assuming I can use here. (laughs) You can say anything here. (laughs) So without that crucial information, instead keeping it inside the body, instead of talking about what happens outside the body... um, If you don't know already, the books really do very little to illuminate that. There really was a whole widespread social movement to try and keep these women from this knowledge. Why? Like, because they thought it was dirty? Because they thought that if you knew about it, you'd want to do it. 
and then you'd lose your virginity before you got married, and then no one would want to marry you. Um, and then I should also add that for families that were um, insecure, that they were part of the industrial labor force, that they were marginalized on the basis of race, on things like that, a lot of people learned about sex by virtue of harassment, um, which isn't the way that it it's not, to think of that as a form of education seems really weird. Um, and it seems to trivialize um, the discomfort um, and the um, cruelty of that form of education. But nonetheless, it was how people learned how things worked and how it was passed on. And when you say um, harassment, are mm-hmm. you talking about sexual assault? So the idea is that anything that was uh, touching all the way to rape was pretty common. Fantastic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a good time. <laughs> Histor- historians have very little nostalgia for the past. We're overwhelmingly like, it's better now. <laughs> By the turn of the 20th century, cities were booming, and it became harder and harder to keep young women from socializing out in the world. They had jobs and new activities to spend their money on. Children were spending more and more time away from their parents. They were um, engaging in all sorts of racy dances and um, and going ice skating and bicycle riding and all of these new activities in very public places. And parents, conceivably some of them the same parents who had learned about sex on their own wedding night, were not crazy about that. Parents' preference was for just keeping the information from their children. You know, if, if you don't know about sex, you won't do it and you'll be kept pure. Um, and then... The idea was that at a certain point, it became impossible to keep this information from young people anymore. And with the realization that you couldn't keep all information away from your children, there was a sense that, okay, well, then I guess we have to talk with them about it, only to find that parents really hate talking to their kids about sex. But something had to be done about all those racy dances, not to mention the ice skating. So eventually the physicians kind of took parents in hand and said, look, somebody's got to do it. If you're not going to do it, we will, because otherwise we're going to have a generation of people who are all full of uh, gonorrhea. (laughs) Doctors talked to the schools and the schools were like, "Okay, fine, we'll address it. And that's how we got the first sex ed classes, though that's not what they were called. It would be a very special day, and the lecturer would come in. Usually it was either a minister or a doctor um, would come in and explain things to students. Um, that brief curriculum is usually supplemented by having somebody on faculty or staff who's in charge of taking individual students aside to talk with them about their sexual habits. So in other words, one student who gets flagged as a dangerous student, you know, maybe she wears her skirt a little high or maybe he has started smoking. Um, they start bringing those students one-on-one to talk to a counselor and those students are given information generally a lecture about how sex works and why one should stay away from it. And the movement kept going. By the early 1920s, a more formalized curriculum started being developed for all students, regardless of hem length. And ta-da, sex education with a capital S was born. But it was seen as something that was uh, an unfortunate necessity as opposed to a preferable outcome. Um. And and when we talk about sex ed in general, what topics are we talking about? So the early classes, it's really geared towards reproduction. And that's about it. It's really just trying to answer the question of where new life comes from. So that for that reason, a lot of the early classes are put in um, what gets called nature study, which is kind of a, imagine biology where you only talk about things you can see. You don't talk about anything that happens at the molecular level. Um, so that version of biology. 
Um, and I guess life sciences would be the closest that we'd, we'd call it now. And in the life science class, students would start by watching, you know, turtles or fish or chicks, um, and then eventually be asked to kind of extrapolate onward from there. Essentially in a classroom setting, reproducing, huh, reproducing, um, what would have happened in a farm setting a few decades before. And, and back then, uh, who was teaching the sex ed classes? The people who least wanted to, I think, would be the way to put it. Okay, so if you imagine yourself as an early 20th century teacher, you're probably female and you're not yet married. This means that you have to be extremely guarded about your own sexual reputation, even though, um, and a lot of the young women who were teaching didn't even know that much about sex. Um, and so these same women, these um, middle-class, respectable, educated women who are the most concerned with protecting their sexual propriety are now asked to teach sex ed. So um, what were early sex educators getting wrong? Well, the one that always startles me the most is whenever I come across explanations of when you're most likely to conceive, which in the early manuals that get created, so supplements to what's happening in the classroom, the kind of manuals you might be handed at the day of your engagement by your parents, um, those always emphasize that if you want to get pregnant, you should really try immediately after your period. Um, and that if you have sex later on, it's probably not going to result in anything. So you should just save your energy. There's also a lot of, um, rumors being taught as fact about how the relationship between what day of the month you have sex and the sex of the baby. So those ones are always pretty funny too. And actually, I remember talking to a neighbor who um, told me that she had been told the only way to have boys was to have sex during her period and informing her husband that they would just never have boys. <laughs> and then what were they getting right? I think that they were uh, perhaps overfocused, but very focused on the problems of sexually transmitted diseases and the unique vulnerabilities of two parties who didn't necessarily know each other's backgrounds. So that that was definitely right. Otherwise, what STDs were around then? Oh, all of them except for AIDS, HIV would be the the way to think of it. So they were very concerned about syphilis and gonorrhea um, because they were still working out uh, cures and treatments. But it sounds like they're basically getting. Um, Education with an emphasis on chastity. Yes, definitely. Um, and that's held less for the men than it is for the women. There's um, constant tirades. Oh, and this is actually one of the things that they got right. There's constant tirades about um, what gets called the double standard. Um, but double standard basically means that there's one standard for sexual propriety for women and another for men, that there's different expectations about what's okay. So the, the example would be customarily that men get praised for sexual activity and women get condemned for sexual activity. And the people who are pro-sex ed are trying to battle against this, but they recognize that it's also a losing battle constantly. When we come back, sex ed morphs with the rise of psychology, wars, and, yep, I promised you, communism. Plus, some practical dating advice for 13-year-old boys. Don't go away. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. <laughs> At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. 
Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. At the end of the war, families were reunited, but the social stability of the American family had been shaken by the increased freedom of women, depression, war, and population movements. Today, we have the smallest family unit in history and the least stable. Our divorce rate has greatly increased. Does this mean that the family as an institution is on the wane? In search of an answer, let us take a closer look at family life today, both on the farm and in the city. We are back with historian and professor Lisa Anderson. And that was a clip from an educational video produced in the 1950s called Our Changing Family Life. Now, that clip um, talked about something that Lisa says came to have a very significant impact on sex education in the middle of the 20th century, divorce. There were uh, quite a few after the end of World War II. <laughs> so there was definitely a lot of people who rushed into marriage and then kind of stepped away from it. Because we're, we're talking about men coming back mm-hmm. from war and and they had previously been married and and things are Some rocky. of them don't work that well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which shouldn't be surprising because you also have in the early, um, in the early to mid 1940s, you start having a drop in the age of marriage. Um, and more than that, the, the percentages of people who are married by the time they're 22 are very, very high. The other thing is in the late 1930s, you get what seems like a frightening spike in divorces, um, mostly because people couldn't afford to get divorced during the Great Depression. They had to stay married because they didn't have the money in order to pay for the paperwork. Um, so as soon as people can pay for it, and with the end of World War II, all of a sudden you get an upswing. This increased divorce rate was very distressing to another group of people in America in the mid-century, psychologists. Freudian theories had become mainstream in this era, and social scientists began worrying about the fragility of the American family. It's the very idea of divorce um, that these particular people find so terrifying, um, in part because divorce suggests a breakdown in people's ability to adjust to each other. Um, And adjustment is a very important kind of Freudian adapters term, um, which basically comes to the idea of can you be comfortable in the environment that you're in? Can you fit into the world as it currently exists? Social scientists decided that teaching young people about how to adjust would go a long way to shore up the American family. So sex ed becomes 
incorporated into a larger curriculum called family life, in which the idea is how do we set people up to be successful in marriages? Um, And so it's couched in terms, I guess the way to express it is if in the early 20th century, human reproduction was understood by connecting it to what the birds and the bees did, right? That was part of nature study. In the mid-century, the idea of sex education is to connect sex ed to budgets and to occupational choices and to cooking lessons. So in other words, the context is shifted from the natural world to the social world. Um, and sex has to be part of that. Because when people start doing research, um, the social scientists start trying to figure out why some marriages end in divorce and why others don't. One of the things that they find is that people who have bad sex are more likely to get divorced. So there's this matter of trying to prepare people um, for this thing that they're not allowed to practice but nonetheless have to be proficient in by the time they get married. So by this point, um, it's a whole semester course called Family Life Education or Marriage in the Family or the American Family or one kind of a version of that, but always with the word family in the title. Um, And then there's also parallel college courses, which are named things like sociology of the family or family life studies or things like that. Um, So it's a curriculum that exists over multiple years, and it's its own discipline. You can get degrees in it. It's absolutely its own area of study and research. In the junior high and high school level, they're getting taught by regular faculty, mostly young married teachers. Um, Perhaps the most famous of these teachers is a woman named Elizabeth Force, who was herself a widow, um, and she, but she was a prolific author in addition to being a teacher and actually wrote the textbook that was in widest circulation. And what was Elizabeth Force's book like? What, what I did have she? it right here, oh. actually. I even brought it today. Let so this see. is called Your Family, Today and Tomorrow. And this was in very wide circulation. So the book itself, like if I go through the table of contents, um, the first unit is on homes in general and yours in particular. Unit two is looking toward marriage. Unit three, object, matrimony, which starts with the questions, is marriage for you? making good use of the engagement period, and learning to be Mr. and Mrs. Um, And then we get things like uh, the following units are inside the family circle, practical problems, starting with the family person leading to kitchen privileges and responsibilities. Um, And then (laughs) unit six is outside the family circle and has three chapters about divorce and other forms of family dysfunction. And a lot of the curriculum is very distinguished from the don't get syphilis and gonorrhea um, bit of the the early century by the fact that it has a focus that minimizes problems like venereal disease um, and premarital pregnancy and instead really is investing in the idea of values discernment. Like, what sort of life do I want to have? What are my strengths and weaknesses? Lessons focused on family and the future and goals. They also got a lot more descriptive about sex. Okay, so here I'm going to read a description from The Wonder of Life, uh, which was written by um, Milton Levine and Jean Siegelman and was published in 1952. So this text is dear to my heart because this is the text that my grandmother gave my mother. Um, And you can listen here for a pretty representative explanation of what sex is. When a husband and wife feel the desire for sexual intercourse, they lie close together, facing one another, with the man usually above the woman. Then the penis becomes hard and erect because it could not easily slip into the vagina in its normally soft condition. When this erection has occurred, the man places his penis into the woman's vagina. The semen bearing the sperm cells is released from the man's body and passes out of the penis and into the woman's vagina. From there, the sperm swim up into the uterus, where a single sperm may perhaps unite with a single egg. 
I mean, overall, as descriptions go, that's pretty good, right? Yeah. It's certainly a lot better than, you know, the female, the male sperm and the female germ have union, which, I mean, God only knows what that means. Um, instead, it's actually frank because it's talking about the phenomenon you can actually see. And since mid-century sex education was so concerned about happy marriages, it also urged kids to think very carefully about choosing who they would marry. So the idea of dating had um, kind of an extraordinary importance mid-century, where people really felt like dating was the primary way that one engaged socially at all. So there was a huge emphasis on having um, pairs of people, having equal numbers of boys and girls in any group that went out, um, with the idea that the pair was the fundamental unit of kind of all social behavior. And so the idea was that you wanted to start in junior high to make sure somebody didn't get distracted um, and wind up not understanding that they needed to be dating at some point to kind of make sure that people didn't inadvertently wind up single. And I just want to clarify, um, so junior high kids dating in Mm -hmm. the 50s, are we talking about like you should be fooling around with lots of people or you should just be like going out on dates? You should be going out on dates and then kind of the end of the night kiss is seen as pretty okay. And then the idea is that petting should be reserved for your um, the person who you're engaged to, pinned with, or you're steady. That was the, the language that they would use. You might, like me, uh, be wondering what exactly petting means. Lisa says it's something she actually had to look up. But for kids of this era, it would have been clear. It's kissing if you're sitting or standing, but it's petting if you have to lay down to do it. Oh. I know. So I thought that was really interesting. And then they make the distinction of above the waist and below the waist petting. So it's less even the action of what's happening and more having to do with body placement and position. Like how serious are you yeah. right now? So, well, because one of the things we know is that the um, the spectrum of intimate behaviors changes over time, right? So um, if I give an example, like I remember having a very uncomfortable conversation with my parents when the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, um, in which for me, as a child who had grown up um, in the AIDS era, it was very clear that um, copulation was its own thing, right? Because that was something that was a high-risk AIDS behavior versus oral sex was less of a high-risk behavior. It was still risk, but much less. So for my generation, we had placed oral sex as something that was less um, intimate than copulation, Right. Mm -hmm. And my parents saw that as like, no, no, that's copulation plus bells and whistles. You know, (laughs) they put it on the other side. So even that that question of how we um, place items on that spectrum of sexual intimacy is very much historical, not rational. So um, I want to play you a short clip from a video that was made in 1949, and it is called Dating Do's and Don'ts. How do you choose a date? Whose company would you enjoy? Well, one thing you can consider is looks. Woody thought of Janice and how good-looking she was. He'd really have to rate to date somebody like her. Yes, he'd enjoy that. Except, well, it's too bad Janice always acts so superior and bored. She'd make a fellow feel awkward and inferior. Well, perhaps someone who doesn't feel superior. There's Betty. And yet, it just doesn't seem as if she'd be much fun. What about Anne? She knows how to have a good time and how to make the fellow with her relax, have fun too. Yes, that's what a boy likes. He wants to know he's appreciated. Anne would be fun on a date. 
Lisa, was this typical of sex ed around 1950, like with the emphasis on telling guys to find the fun girl and and like encouraging girls to make a fella feel relaxed? Yeah. <laughs> no, this was in fact like pretty pretty much in the curriculum. Okay, obviously that video clip is so blatantly sexist and that's not good. But Lisa does count some of the things from this era as positive, like an emphasis on sex being a normal part of life and the way programs encourage conversations about personal values and relationships in a school setting. But one of the things it doesn't is something that's not even spoken in here, right, which is the assumption that women have very little agency or um, power in this situation. And instead, the best thing they can do is to make themselves desirable little flowers that the male bee will come and visit. <laughs> um, and that's definitely embedded in it. Part of it is that part of teaching family life education at this point is teaching gender roles is teaching women how to be feminine and men how to be masculine. We have Freud to thank for that. Thanks for Freud. (laughs) Um, But it's almost impossible to overstate the extent to which the word personality or the word popularity saturates this curriculum, right? It's about how to fit in. Um, So you need your family to fit in and you personally need to fit. So so this this stuff about seeing sex as part of a, um, a happy, healthy life actually kind of seems progressive like when you think about it yeah but but was it like like uh was it inclusive of people who weren't interested in marriage or uh wanted to be with a same-sex partner uh you could be single that was seen as acceptable that was a, a research finding was that some people weren't appropriate for marriage and those people shouldn't get married because if they did it would end in a divorce anyway so went the thinking But the problem was that since the research that was directing this teaching was all about um, what marriages had been successful 20 or 30 years before, the idea was that the world would continue in a constant fashion. It would never, ever change. And so if the world was never, ever going to change, then you had best accommodate yourself to the world. The reason why you shouldn't wind up with a same-sex partner, so in thinking, was that if you did so, you would both never have children and you'd be socially stigmatized. It was much easier to just accommodate. Same thing with um, the wide variety of marriages that were called mixed marriages, whether it was by race or by religion. The idea that how could a Jew and a Catholic possibly have a happy marriage? They had, if you looked historically, Jews and Catholics had been stigmatized by both the Jewish and the Catholic communities. So really just make it easier on yourself and find someone who's just like you. Now, it's important to note that the sex education we're talking about here was limited to people who went to school, which at this point in history was not everyone. Less than half of the population had a high school degree in 1950, and segregation warped the messages too. In fact, Lisa says inequities in education had a profound effect on sex ed for people of color. So there's some really significant differences, um, less in terms of the material and more in terms of access to that material. So for example, in African-American middle-class women, um, there is a significant effort in those communities to both keep those women as safe as possible, away from harassment, and to try and preserve as closely as possible a sense of respectability. Part of this is because these are women who are especially vulnerable. There are really deeply problematic um, understandings of African-American women as somehow more promiscuous, intrinsically more promiscuous, that because those ideas are circulating, especially amongst white men, um, you get the idea that these women are, um, that somehow assaulting them doesn't count. 
it doesn't count as assault, that it's somehow okay. Um, and that it's, so those women really are in a very real way in a, a great amount of danger. And so their families will do just about anything to try and keep them safe. Um, and that's, that's definitely part of it. So, um, like the advice that's often given by, um, family life educators to African American women who are at, in HPC use, the historically black colleges and universities, um, where they have significant family life and home ec departments. Most of it is encouraging dating the same way that it would in other curriculum, but emphasizing that this dating should probably occur in houses or should occur at church events. Um, so in other words, that, you know, the bowling alley isn't your best choice. Um, so it's suggesting and modifying um, what is in wider circulation and trying to figure out how to do that in an environment in which Black men get lynched for sexual transgressions, ostensible, that probably never existed, and where Black women are routinely subject to sexual harassment and rape. As family life education became more and more widespread through the 40s and 50s, it started to develop some critics. And those critics were not obsessing about divorce anymore, or at least not as much. Uh, Yep, this is where the communism comes in. Family life education had been very focused on values discernment, on what kind of life is it that you want to lead and what's the best way to get to that life. And so one of the things that happens is that sounds an awful like like an instruction for children to say, think for yourself and don't do what your parents tell you. The idea is that somehow that's going to weaken families. So there's all these kind of far-right groups that start attacking family life education as something which is dangerous to families. The criticisms get amplified as soon as they get fused to a concern about communism. The idea is that if families do weaken, somehow that will make it easier for the communists to take over the country. Lisa says this concern, this fear of communism, was hard for sex educators to take seriously, but it did have a lot of traction politically, and that meant sex ed started to be less exciting to school districts. Years went by without a new curriculum. The old stuff kept getting taught. Part of it is that um, once textbooks get written or curriculums get designed, um, they tend to stay in circulation for at least 10 years. So you have to figure anything that gets taught in a classroom is probably taught out of a 10-year-old textbook, and it probably reflects the state of knowledge 20 years before that. So Uh by the time it gets to a student, it's 30 years out of date, inevitably. Isn't that comforting for all of us? (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. That's how all education should work. Yeah. So when you get the late 1960s, once again, people are using textbooks that are old, right? They're being very, very conventional in most ways. They're learning typical gender roles. They're learning nothing about homosexuality. They're learning nothing about um, avoiding stereotyping or avoiding sexual harassment. If anything, those textbooks are still giving the party line that you as a woman are responsible for making sure your date doesn't rape you. I mean, like, it's insane in some ways. Um, And yet... The problem is that those textbooks, which have, you know, set students up for this very conventional sort of life, also ask students questions that they start to have answers to, right? Students start to say, wait a second, if my job is to discern my values and my values are not reflected in what you're telling me I'm supposed to wind up doing, I'm going to listen to me. And so they start pushing back in that particular way. So they kind of inform their teachers. Now, to their teacher's credit, the teachers often wind up saying, oh my gosh, look, they're self-aware. You know, they actually see this as a bit of a triumph. And eventually the teachers kind of jump on board um, so that you start to see more and more coalitions of teachers and students working together to improve information about sexuality in schools. By the time you get to the 1970s, it's actually not uncommon. And while kids had always told each other their own theories about sex, 
educators in this era started to see peer-to-peer education as a great way to spread reliable information. So to take that idea that that most reformers had always feared, which is that the students would talk amongst themselves, and instead to use that as an asset. Like maybe if you actually train the students to actually know something about sex, they actually can talk about it with their peers in a way that's fairly rational. They can be the source of information 24-7 instead of having a very special lecture with the health teacher and the shop teacher. (laughs) So, so special. In a minute, Madonna. Plus, what Lisa's teaching her own kids about sex. Stay with us. <laughs> Advertisements. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Many people think you can tell if someone has AIDS just by looking at them, but they're wrong. A person can have AIDS for a long time without showing any symptoms. So protect yourself. Not having sex is one way to avoid AIDS. Staying away from people who shoot drugs is another. If you do have sex, use a condom. It may be the most important thing you ever do. Because what you see may not be what you get. Help protect yourself against AIDS. We are back with historian Lisa Anderson, and that was a clip of a PSA video produced in the 1980s, narrated by, of course, Madonna. Lisa, tell me how um, sex ed was affected by HIV and AIDS. Enormously. So one of the things that happens is that after the the fear that sex ed is actually a communist plot um, starts to subside, there isn't a lot of sex ed. It's not really getting taught a lot in the 1970s. It's kind of the doldrums. Um, And then when HIV, AIDS enters onto the scene, all of a sudden it creates alliances among people related to medicine and education that hadn't existed for a very long time, um, in which the sheer quickness of the spread and devastating nature of HIV and AIDS encourages um, frank discussions of sexuality on a level that had never previously existed. Yeah. And and so there's this like focus on public health. Yeah. 
So at that point, um, sex ed's purpose shifts from being about creating stronger families to minimizing enormous public health issues. So by the end of the, by like 1990, most schools in the country are offering some form of HIV AIDS education, even if they're not offering any of the other things that we think of as part of sex ed. Is there any disadvantage to um, sex ed that's highly focused on a public health message? I think the way to think about it is if one contemplates what sex sex's purpose is in your life, chances are that that doesn't get explained if we just talk about HIV. Right. Sex is something that has to do with gender roles. It has to do with relationships. It has to do with who does the dishes. Um, it has to do with a million trillion different things. And so that narrow restriction leaves so much unexplained. I think that that can be really difficult for young people. And you see this reflected even now in the newer legislation that's coming through, which actually differentiates between comprehensive sex education and HIV education, that those are actually seen as two separate things. Managing the problem of potential public health crises is one issue, but that's not going to help you figure out how to survive prom. This era, the 1980s, was also when a heavy emphasis on abstinence-only education entered the picture. So it starts under the Reagan administration or the first um, points where you have federal funds specifically allotted um, as incentivizing grants to encourage districts to take up this policy. And is that the first time you see sex ed becoming politicized like that? Oh, I think it's always been political. I think it's one of those uh, issues where everybody has opinions about it because everybody thinks they're an expert. You know, people know that they don't understand calculus. They know they don't remember um, history of the 18th century, but they think that they understand sex. Everybody's an expert. And so in that kind of world, it becomes a public issue that everybody feels like they can debate. And so often it gets pushed into politics and elections and legislation, even if that's not its natural home, simply because it's a place where people think they can contribute. And have we seen uh, any impact on uh, teen birth rates and STDs from sex ed, from like changes in curriculum? We don't have a lot of evidence that any form of sex education really accomplishes many of those public health related ideals. Um, there just isn't that much. For one thing, we'd have to do really good longitudinal studies. On the other hand, that's not all that sex education does. If we think of sex education as something that isn't merely about public health, although you know there is something really nice about the idea of giving people a way to understand and to have responsibility for their health, but instead we think about a fitness in the universe, right? How do you understand the meaning of sexuality in your life? How do you understand its public implications in terms of a whole variety of civic issues and civic relationships? Those things are really difficult to measure, but we need to think about that as something that nonetheless sex education is trying to support. Lisa, you have two young boys in elementary school and, um, I wonder how you how you plan on giving them sex education. So my kids, uh, basically the way that conversation about sex education comes up is related to what occurs to us in the world around us. So to give an example, um, so my kids are six and eight, and they are very precocious, um, like that they ask lots and lots of questions and expect answers to them and then walk away as they get bored. So I have to work, work with sound bites when I'm talking to them. But with my older child... Um, we were having a conversation the other day about bad words and curse words, and I was expressing the fact that most bad words and curse words that aren't mean, in other words, that aren't slurs, 
um, relate to one of two bodily functions. <laughs> and the ones that relate to sex, I was like, because you remember what sex is, right? And he looked at me and goes, no. Well, okay, we've had this conversation three times. This is now an annual conversation because he forgets it every year. And so once again, I reminded him what sex is. And once again, he had the same response he always has every time. And he looks at me and goes, that's weird. It is like, weird. It is weird. I'm like, I'm not going to pretend. One of the things we try and often strip ideas of humor out of sexuality, and I'm not sure that that makes any sense, given I know what the conversations between my friends and I are about sex. I assume that most of them are spent giggling. Why we try and make the sex education classroom a very serious place, I'm still a little unsure about. So for, for the eight-year-old, that makes total sense. For the six-year-old, he got the talk again the other night because we were singing along with Madonna's Like a Virgin um, on the radio, at which point he asked, what's a virgin? And I'm like, okay, well, and you know, it's kind of funny because for me, I grew up going to Catholic school. And so the idea of virginity was there from the very beginning with the Virgin Mary. So I, I don't have any recollections of not knowing what virginity was. And then I realized, oh yeah, I got to explain it to the kid because this hasn't come up for him. Um, so there's a lot of ways that you can kind of take things that are happening in your world and just take moments to pause and explain and not have to be thorough, I think is the thing. Lisa thinks pretty broadly when it comes to talking about sex. For example, she has two rules in her family. Everyone gets to pick what name or nickname they're called, and everyone gets to choose how they're touched. She says these rules are also pretty good at helping her kids practice empathy and good listening. She feels like she's giving them a foundation that will eventually help them deal with sexuality in all kinds of environments, from school to work or wherever. And she doesn't mind explaining things a few times either. Some form of sex ed in school is pretty common these days. But for many of us, sex education is a conversation we start at home. If you are looking for ways to bring up these topics with your kids or continue them with your teens, you can find resources on our website, longestshortesttime.com. Or, you know, you can always consult one of Lisa's favorite turn-of-the-century texts, which is actually written by a man whose name is actually Cox um, in 1907. I should say also, it's not spelled C-O-X, it's spelled... C-O-C-K-S. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> People, we are obviously dying to hear all of the weird stuff that's been a part of your sex ed over the years. What bizarre details do you remember about your sex ed teacher? What color were her nails? Tell us everything on our website in the comments for this episode. That's episode 134. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Abigail Keel and Kristen Clark. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by HotMoms.gov and directed by Allison Leighton Brown. We get editorial support from Anne-Marie Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Rika Murthy. Next week, on The Longest Shortest Time, the writer Eula Biss gets a form from her son's school asking her to explain the school's rules. Instead, my son and I discussed the civil rights movement, and I reminded him that not all rules are good rules and that unjust rules must be broken. This was, I now see, a somewhat unhinged response to the first week of kindergarten. You guys remember how we did an episode called How to Not Accidentally Raise a Racist? This episode continues that important conversation. Do not miss it. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories and your weird parenting wins. Now that we've got you thinking about doing it, 
Send in your sex life-related wins. Come on, you guys. You want to save the sex lives of your fellow parents, right? Go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. 